As you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. It's wonderful to be back with you all today. My family and I had a very restful time uh, during, during vacation. We had the chance to listen to, uh, the, listen to the service. We missed you all greatly. Uh, it was wonderful hearing from Stephen Spanger. thought he did a wonderful job last week. I'm very grateful uh, to him for allowing me to have that, uh, that time. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll just be reading the first two verses today as we look at an overview of this book as we begin a new journey uh, through another book of the New Testament. Listen carefully because this is God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our message this morning. Lord, we thank you for this incredible book that you have given to us. And I ask that you would help us as we embark on this new study, that we would get to see the wonderful things that you have contained in it. And that these are your very words from you to us today. I pray that we would hear them, that we would apply them, and that we would use them to help us love you better. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are in ministry or a pastor at any given point in time and you're with a group of other Christians, it's it's usually at some point someone will turn to you and say, Brother, would you give us a word of encouragement? Something that that you think that we need to hear today. And the book of Ephesians is the answer to that question from Paul. If we were to ask Paul, Paul... Tell us something that we need to hear as a church. What you would see here in these, this book of Ephesians is Paul's very answer to that question. This is a wonderful book of the New Testament. And some have looked at this book as being the crowning achievement of Paul's theological writings. That this is some of his most deep theology told in such a concise way. And it's answering questions that we have, an- that we have the questions about. Uh, commentators have referred to this, talks about issues of God's sovereignty, race relations, roles in marriage, the family, the nature of the church, and spiritual warfare. These are all questions that we're wrestling with today. And these are the questions that the church at Ephesus wrestled with as well. So in order to understand a little bit, about this letter. It might be worth taking just a little bit of time to learn about the Ephesian people themselves and the city of Ephesus. The city of, Eph- the city of Eph- Ephesus was put on a little isthmus, a little projection into some water that was a place where ships could come and harbor. Not very large ones, but it was still a place of trade. The, it was a very sprawling metropolis. About 200 to 250,000 people lived in Ephesus, about the size of Metro Birmingham. They would have been a beautiful place of power, 
place of political power. They were third only to Athens and Rome. Uh, They were also a, a, a people that built amazing structures, structures that actually we get to see in the scriptures. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 19, this will be Paul's encounter in Ephesus. And he greets the people and causes a riot. Acts 19, starting in verse 21. And after these events, and these events have been a huge portion of the population coming to Christ and burning all of their books of magic worth about 50,000 days of salary. So there's, he's, he's caused a stir here. And in verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So here you see the gospel is going forward, and the people who, are, who stand to make quite a bit of money off of the false religion are rather upset. They drag him into the theater. The theater itself was about 475 feet wide, 98 feet high, and could seat 24,000 people. So it was a huge place for things to gather. And what about that Artemis that they talked about? This was a, this was a goddess that they worshipped. Her temple was about the size of an American football field. had 127 columns of marble. It was six feet in diameter, about 60 feet high. This was a huge area of pride for Ephesus. In fact, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that they had worshipped. So this is the culture that Ephesus is in. This little church in this sprawling community. And so now Paul is writing to them this letter. And I've titled this sermon, and probably this series in total, Practical Christianity. Excuse me. Sounds like the... I'm going to have to speak a little closer in here. I think my uh, battery pack died. So this book of Ephesians divides very nicely into two halves. The first as being that of concerned concerns theology. What is it that has been true? And then in the second half, 
chapters four through six, is how do we respond to what is true? We've got the facts and then how we're supposed to follow those facts, the indicatives and then the imperatives. So the two points that we're going to be looking at today and what I think you could summarize the book of Ephesians as a whole is what you see on your outline is the first is that God has lavishly poured out grace on you. God has lavishly poured out grace on you. And then the second point is that you have every reason to surrender, meaning to surrender your life to him and follow Christ for all of your days. So that's what's going to be the message of Ephesians. And as we begin, let's begin at the beginning. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is introducing himself, as is typical in a letter, giving his name and his title, that he is the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, when he says apostle here, he's not only referring to just the fact that he has been sent by Jesus. He is. That's what the word apostle strictly means, is sent one. But it's also a title in this particular time of church history. And that he's not only been sent by God, but he has been authorized by God, as one commentator put it, to bring the word of God to his people, bringing new revelation to the church. That title doesn't exist anymore. We have all of the scripture that we are ever going to have. So we don't have apostles being able to make authoritative statements about here is new doctrine for you. But this is something that was given to the Apostle Paul. This was done by the will of God, something that God had chosen to do. This wasn't something where Paul happened to fall into this role by knowing somebody who knew somebody and was connected. This was someone who was sent by the will of God. And this apostle is sending this information to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful or believing, as another way to translate it, in Christ Jesus. Those who have been set apart by God, those who believe in Christ Jesus. Not two separate people, but one. And then he gives them this typical greeting of Paul's of grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the commentators point out, and the Lord Jesus Christ, tying the person of Jesus and God the Father together, showing that that Paul has a very high view of who Christ is, an accurate view of who Christ is, and that of God himself. So as he begins in chapter 1, he lays out all of the spiritual blessings that he can think of that are ours in Christ. And I can't wait to go through this list with y'all. This is a wonderful chapter that, that is just great to dive into. But we're just going to pick out just one for us to look at here, of what he's doing. In verse 5, he gives us this huge blessing for us. And I want us to get into the proper mindset to listen to this. Because if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard Ephesians read, or hopefully you've read it yourself. And we've become very familiar with what God has promised to us and the blessings that we have. And we don't approach it with the right amount of wonder. 
And I think one way that we can do that is if we were to approach this chapter in a lot the same way that we will approach a lot of mail that comes to our house. Have you ever gotten those offers where you know it's too good to be true before you even open the envelope? It's like, dear current occupant, you've won a 14-day all-expenses-paid cruise, and all you have to do is give us your social security number to verify your identity. We know immediately that that's not true. We've not won a 14-day cruise. Nobody pays for us to go on vacation randomly. It's just too good to be true. We've even grown used to that when we get offers and see things like for gas credit cards at the gas station. We don't even look at what the offer is. We just try to see where the asterisk is to see the fine print. 12 cents off of every gallon of gas you buy. If you buy the most expensive gas and only for a limited time. We know that even something like 12 cents off of a gallon of gas is just not something you can expect in today's world. And we've grown very skeptical of blessing. We've grown very skeptical of free offers of anything. So when we get to verse 5, we should be astounded. Because look what it says here. I'm going to read just a couple words back from verse 5. In love, he, that is God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Being adopted by God. Do we not have any sort of wonder from that? I mean, we doubt the idea of being able to get a dozen cents off a gallon of gas. And the idea that we are being given the opportunity to join the family of God should strike us. This is far more than any other offer we've ever been given. And the fact that he says adoption as sons, Paul is not being sexist here and ignoring daughters. What he's saying here is as sons means there is an inheritance coming. When you were adopted in the ancient world, there was nothing that could be done to write you out of the will. Once you were in, you were in. And as a son, you had a share of the property that was coming to you. You were guaranteed inheritance in the family if you were adopted. And this is what's being offered to us now. The blessings of being in Christ is being adopted into the family of God. Being a part of Jesus. And there's no asterisk there. There is no fine print. It's being adopted. That's just one blessing that Paul points out here. And that's not even the biggest one. I'll let you try to figure out which one I think is the biggest blessing that he gives to us in this chapter. You can read that this afternoon. But there's no time to dwell anymore on chapter one and all these blessings that we have because we look into chapter two. Because we might begin to ask, well, adopted into the family of God, I must have been very impressive. The most impressive orphan at the orphanage, that he would have picked me. Well, we get to chapter two. And we hear very Presbyterian Lee, cheer up, you're worse than you think. As we get into chapter two. And it says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Now that chapter one should be even more amazing to us, isn't it? God didn't come down and find the diamonds in the rough, buffed us up a little bit, and now we're a part of his treasured possession. Now he's reached down into the cemetery, pulled our bones from the grave, and give us new life. The picture here that we have in Ephesians 2 is the walking dead. Those who are following after whatever their hearts and minds thought of in that moment to do. Enslaved by our own passions and dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our state. The state of the world in Ephesians chapter 2 where God finds us. Now what's interesting is that we have even more to look at in Ephesians 2 and 3 based on who we are. We who are in America, we who, for the most of us, bear no Jewish heritage at all, we get an extra blessing here. Because this is looking in verse 11. It says, remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles, non-Jews, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our state. When the Lord has been working all through the Old Testament, he was working through one particular people to bring about the Messiah. The covenant was with Israel, wasn't with anybody else. Sure, you could join the people of Israel, but that was quite a process. That meant leaving everything behind as we saw in these last few weeks in the book of Ruth, right? She left everything behind. All of her identity, ethnically and otherwise. Because she didn't have the blessings of the covenant. But now that covenant has been opened up from the Jews now to the rest of the world. Now all of us can say, we are God's people. If we have put our faith and trust in Christ. And we'll find out in chapter 3 that that was the plan all along. This, that Paul talks about this mystery of Christ. That all the world can be brought in to glorify the Lord. And in fact, it's not just Jews and Gentiles. But if we can actually flip back just a second to chapter 1. And looking at... Verse 10, that all of this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul paints for us this picture of where the world is going, that one day all things will be united in Christ. If you remember back in Genesis, all things have been split apart. Heaven and hell, God and humanity, earth and heaven, all of those things split apart because of Adam and Eve's sin. And we've been waiting for the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ, 
who came and died on the cross for our sins and made a way possible for us to return back in fellowship with God. And his mystery that he points to is that we're going to see Jews and Gentiles coming back together, united humanity once again. Heaven and earth restored. This is the beautiful picture that Paul paints for us of what we need to know in the church. We've been needing some good news lately, haven't we? Well, here's our news. If you're a believer in Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. You've been adopted not based on anything that you have done. In fact, despite everything that you have done, as Ephesians 2 says. And no matter who you are, you can come and join and be a part of this family of God. Be united in Christ with the rest of the world. Or the rest of the world of believers, rather. This has been the plan for all of eternity. This isn't, like Bob Ross is fond of saying, a happy accident that just happened to work out this way. But the Lord has been painting this portrait very purposefully and has brought us to this point. And that's the news. Now what? How do we react to that? For those of you that have lived long enough to experience major life changes, perhaps when you've graduated from high school or college or when you got your first big promotion or when you got married or had children, there is that moment immediately after the event happens where you know everything's going to be different now. And there's this moment of, to be honest, panic. It's like, what are we going to do? I have this little thing that depends on me now. How am I supposed to live? We've just been told that your entire eternity is secure if you're in Christ. So now what do we do? Well, we get the rest of the answer in chapters 4 through 6. This is a beautiful tension that's formed here in this book. These first three chapters we could call justification. Christ has set us free from all of our sins, and he he imputes to us all of his righteousness, reckons us just as righteous as Christ. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and say, okay, great, got my license to sin, right? No. This calls us to something in chapters 4 through 6. After 1 through 3, then we get the first two words of chapter 4. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have been given an incredible blessing in chapters 1 through 3. Blessings. So in light of all of that, here's what we do. And urges us to go forward. There will be several themes that we'll see repeated really on both halves of the letter, but we'll see themes of unity, themes of love that we are called to in this new life and what that looks like. We'll see a section about putting off the old man and putting on the new, that there is a new life that we're heading towards, something that the Lord calls us to do, and something that is going to be constant. 
By the way, this isn't going to be something that you're going to see just in your own private personal heart. But this is going to have effects that other people can see, as we'll see when we get to chapter 5. This has impact on how you treat your family. Your relationship with Christ is going to change your relationship with your wife or with your husband and your children. This is going to have an impact in how you treat your employees and how you treat your employer. Everything about your life should change because of chapters 1 through through 3. And he lays out what this is going to look like in very challenging ways. Even the children are being told what to do in the first part of chapter 6. This is a very comprehensive gospel. This is not something that is just confined to Sunday, but makes a difference throughout the whole rest of your life. That there should be a real transformation for holiness. And then as we'll see as we get to the end of chapter 6, we'll find out that this life of holiness that God calls you to is not because Jesus is taking you through some sort of self-improvement spa where the Lord is trying to make you who you can, what your full potential can be. It's not what this is about. This holiness that Christ calls us to is a boot camp because there's war. As we'll see in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, there is a spiritual battle going on here. You've been called into some fantastic blessings, yes. There's a really high calling for your life, yes. Because there's a purpose to all of this. The glory of God. And joining in this cosmic battle. We don't think about cosmic battles nearly enough. We're far too focused on other things that look like the ultimate battle. Whether that's elections or workplace politics or whatever it is that keeps you up at night. It's not the real fight. It's the spiritual fight. It's a fight for holiness. This is Ephesians. And lest we think that the Second half of the, you know, we got the first half of the the chapters, all the good news, and then the second half of the chapters where we feel bad about ourselves. No. Second half of the chapter is good news, too. That we can be transformed to be holy. I've been reading this wonderful book uh, by an old churchman. His name is J.C. Ryle. I would highly commend J.C. Ryle, even though he has been. He has written a hundred or so years ago. His writing is still very accessible. And he talks about forming holiness. And and talks about this as preparing us for heaven. He mentions, and I won't get the quote exactly, but he talks about everybody thinks about and wants to go to heaven, but nobody thinks about whether they would enjoy themselves once they got there. Because when we get to heaven... Heaven is a place of holiness. Heaven is a place of worshiping the Lord. Heaven is a place of service. Heaven is not a place where we get a hole-in-one at the golf tournament every time. Even if we did, that'd get pretty boring after a bit. Heaven is not floating around in clouds and stringing a harp. That's not heaven. 
Heaven is what we're called to enjoy now, in a small way. This life that Paul describes in 4 through 6 is as close to heaven on earth as we will ever see. A husband who devotedly sacrifices himself for his wife. And a wife who devotedly submits herself to her husband. Children who obey their parents. Those who work hard at their work, not just to please their employer in hopes of maybe their employer will notice, but working for the Lord. Cleaning up our speech so that is edifying and grace-giving. That, in its perfect expression, is what we'll see in heaven. So let's get ready for that and get ready for that even now. And in all this, as we walk through this book together, Paul wrote this letter with the understanding that, we, that the congregation will have heard both ends of it all at once. All of the blessings and all of the callings. And we're not able to preach this that comprehensively. So as we go through this thing, and as we're in the first parts of chapters 1 and 3, we're going to keep that tension of, yes, there's blessing, but there's also calls on our life. And when we get to the second half, and we hear about calls on our life, we're going to hear, but there's gospel. And it's important to keep these two things in tension. I like the term tension better. It keeps you from falling in one direction or the other. Not become so overly focused on the life that God calls us to live that we forget that the only reason why we can live that life at all is because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, when we're hearing about all the blessings that Christ has offered to us and the new life that he has purchased for us, declaring us righteous despite anything else that we've done, we have that call to say, and we need to live that out. That's going to be the joy and the blessing that we'll see in Ephesians. That tells us who we are and who we get to be. I heard a, in closing, heard a wonderful podcast just yesterday while I was on the lawnmower. This is a missionary to Italy who has a lot of contact with uh, Roman Catholics. And he says he likes to ask them the two questions, one of which is the EE question. You might be familiar with it. If you were to die today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And he says, typically, I will get the answer of, well, I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other thing. Or I've not done this, that, or the other thing. And then he asked a second question, which I thought was really good. And he said, based on your answer, who gets the glory for you being in heaven? And if the answer to the question was, well, because I, because I, because I, well, then you get the glory for being in heaven, don't you? And then he talked about if one of the angels was to stand around and look at you and say, wow, you got to heaven. You did a good job. Then the angel's no longer worshiping God, is he? He's worshiping you. That's not what we'll ever see. If the angel comes up and talks to us and say, wow, you got into heaven. God is amazingly merciful and gracious. I think that's a wonderful way that we look at this book. Yes, the Lord calls us to a high standard of holiness. 
One that I think we have been far too comfortable lowering. But we must always keep in mind that the only reason why we have this conversation at all, the only reason why we have this transformation at all, is because what Christ has done for us. That's the view that Ephesians looks at. It's Christ is the one who has come, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, rose again from the grave and promises to do the same for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And I look forward to seeing all the various layers of that gospel message as we go through this wonderful book together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to remind ourselves of those things that we so easily forget. We so easily forget that our life is supposed to be one of glorifying you. We so easily forget that you've called us to holiness and away from our own agendas and have called us into yours. And then as we get focused on that, we forget entirely That you are the one who has done it. That you are the one that brings us into heaven. As your servant Alistair Begg once said that we are in heaven because the one in the center cross said I could come. I pray that you would help us to hold both of these two things in tension together. That we would be driven by a love for what you have given to us in the gospel that we might live out a life that glorifies you and prepares us for heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.